0: Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex von Tobel, and this week I'm excited for you to meet Nigel Morris, co-founder and managing partner of QED Investors, a fintech venture capital platform focused on disruptive, high-growth financial service companies. Prior to QED, Nigel co-founded Capital One Financial Services in 1994. Under Nigel's leadership as president and chief operating officer, Capital One pioneered an information-based strategy that transformed the consumer lending industry. Today, Capital One is one of the largest retail banks in the United States, servicing more than 100 million customers across a diverse set of businesses. As an investor, Nigel has backed companies that include Credit Karma, Nubank, Klarna. Nigel is the chairman of ClearScore and Mission Lane and serves on the boards of Remitly, Kinto Andar, Bitso, Amount, and Current. He frequently keynotes at industry leading conferences. Although Nigel grew up mostly in England, he takes an immense pride in the fact that he is at least half Welsh. He is an MBA from London Business School, where he's also a fellow. Nigel is recognized as a top 100 venture capitalist by CB Insights in 2019 and Midas List member in 2020 and 2021. And with that, let's welcome Nigel. Let's go back to the beginning. You've had so many chapters in your career, but I'd love to start with Capital One, which is obviously an iconic brand. Can you go back to the early days of 1994? What was the aha moment and what gave you the guts to start it?
1: The first uh, kind of uh, eureka moment was when uh, we took the ideas that we had and we started to see them in living practice working at Signet Bank in real time. And that would have been in the uh, 89, 90. And then there was a series of innovations that occurred, balance transfer, uh, risk-based pricing, teaser rates, uh, the opening up of the underserved population. We saw this rapid series of innovations that occurred over that four to five-year period that led to a... I don't know a, a real uh, renaissance at Signet Bank, where the securities analysts were recognizing that there was this consumer lending juggernaut that was being built on the side of a very conventional and wonderfully run blue chip regional bank based in Richmond. That then led to what the investment bankers call conglomerate discount, i.e. that two businesses together were the sum of the two plus two equals three. That led to the spin off in 1994. What we saw, Alexa, was the ideas that we had starting to really work in rapid succession that created enormous momentum, and then the spin-off from Cigarette Bank and the creation of what then became Capital One.
0: If you go back to 1994, tell us what the consumer problems were that, you know, let's just take it from the customer point of view. What problems existed and how did you think about solving them?
1: In 1994, credit cards were homogeneously priced across the top 10 players. So Citi and Chase and Manny Manihani and Wells Fargo, B of A, Chemical Bank, some names that we don't know anymore, were all charging 19.8% APR and all charging a $20 fee. There's no segmentation. It was the classic Henry Ford, any color you like, so long as it's black mindset. And I think what so much of part of what uh, uh, Rich and I set out to do was to say, look, we're going to democratize access and we're going to sub-segment tailor different products to different underlying populations, partly based on risk, partly based on the nature of use, and partly based on other dimensions. So what we were able to do was to prevent the cross-subsidization of really good customers for not so good customers, or being charged 19.8% APR, and then open up populations that uh, the banks had historically eschewed. And candidly, if you now run the clock forward 30 years, almost entirely continue to issue those populations. So, for example, as you can tell by my uh, somewhat diluted British accent now, coming to the UK, coming out uh, out of business school and working in a consulting firm, you know, nobody would give me a credit card. I was 26, 27, and they said, you've got no track record. Your Social Security number and your age don't match, and therefore we won't give you a credit card. So if you can't get access to credit, how do you build a credit history? If you can't get a credit history, you can't get a credit card. So our, our notion was, look, we're going to really open up these segments, and we're going to learn our way in because there aren't um, beacons that we can build-off, we would actually test and learn our way into these populations. We were fanatical about leveraging you know, experimental design, experimental methodology, test and control groups. We weren't just asking people what they might do. We were empirically, behaviorally, watching what they actually do do. It sounds quite obvious, doesn't it, now, when you look back on it? I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like it was a, you know, a, a revolution, per se, but it was the marshalling of those ideas and then executing against them at incredibly rapid speed that was a hallmark of Capital One in those days.
0: Capital One was such a pioneer in unlocking access to credit for those who were previously deemed uncreditworthy. Can you walk us through some of the products that you created that have now become completely ubiquitous in the world of finance? And from your point of view at the time, did it feel obvious?
1: Look, we had seen that uh, if you've got two people who are looking for car insurance, one of them is 27 and has had six DUIs and drives around in a red Ferrari, and the other one is 57 and is driving around in a, a Subaru hatchback and has a clean track record. We all understand that they will have very different costs of auto insurance. Same for life, same for other forms of house insurance, residential insurance. But here we have a, a credit card business where everybody gets charged the same price. So that meant that there were large populations that were subsidizing lower risk people, and there were large populations that you just could not be able to deliver a product to for that pricing. It was, in a sense, obvious to apply an analog heuristic from insurance into banking, and the parallels, by the way, do continue to be remarkable between insurance and banking, and they can each industry can learn extensively from each other. But understanding annuity economics and underlying risk was at the core of what Capital One set out to do. So, what were those products? Well, we, uh, you know, pioneered and grew the secure card business. It's certainly, back in, in 1994, if we go back there, if you wanted to check into a hotel or you wanted to rent a car try you know doing that with bills, really hard. Debit cards had not manifested themselves in the way that they have now. Wild. Yeah, wild. Yeah. So by giving somebody a secured card, they then could have one of the key building blocks of managing their life, a cell phone and a Visa or MasterCard. And you could manage the risk by having them place a security with you that would be earning a normal rate of interest that a a bank checking account would give you. And all we have done is joined the two up. So we built a several million a size customer-based portfolio in the secure card. And then we offered different pricing structures to customers who uh, didn't have any credit or who had blemishes on their credit report, and then would aggressively look to matriculate them into a prime segment. And that's really crucial. And this notion of laddering people, educating people in terms of how credit works and their behaviors, and then helping them improve their credit score so that they could get more access and uh, uh, be more in control. It was those themes, Alexa, a slight sidebar that led us into uh, leading the A round at Credit Karma. Now, 120 million customers and part of the Intuit family and ClearScore in the UK that has done the same thing. So this notion of democratization, taking away friction, uh, giving control to the individual or the SMB. And in a sense, uh, taking that hegemonic power that the incumbent has and downstreaming it to the consumer was very much part of what we were out to try to do. Just one thing, the what's in your wallet campaign was absolutely that. Don't be lazy. Don't be lackadaisical. Don't take the product you have that's in your wallet for granted, that it's a good one for you. Have a look at it and then take a look and see if you should switch to a capital one.
0: How did you think about competing with the incumbents, you know, at the time, the incumbents were definitely Goliath. Why was data so key? Where did you come up with that idea? And how did it actually work in practice?
1: Again, it's the the insurance uh, uh, parallel uh, was very key we had worked as strategy consultants for the big banks and uh, we'd seen how they didn't have the data or they didn't capture it their systems were old and clunky and they didn't have the innovation mindset of testing and learning that was so much part of the fabric of capital one as capital one ascended you know we saw BCG mckinsey bain uh, oliver wyman telling and explaining to the other banks here's how capital one does what it does why don't you go do it we'll help you do it it was a wonderful opportunity for them to get some consulting revenue. They could build the systems. They could have the same relationships with various vendors. But what they weren't able to do, and still to this day, I would argue now 30 years on, Capital One still dominates in its creative use of analytics in order to drive better returns and better customer propositions. The key is in the culture and the people. And it's very hard to change that if you don't have the leadership saying, this is how we're going to do it. These are the people we're going to hire. And now as a venture capitalist, the Capital One diaspora is wide and deep. And you know, so many of the companies that, that we've invested in, we've invested in 200 now over uh, the last 15 years, so many of them have Capital One DNA and or Capital One people in there driving these businesses. The methodologies have become uh, part of the DNA of how consumer finance works now around the world. It was Capital One that created the punch through that created all, all that momentum.
0: I would love to get a sense of a few of your predictions, and I want to start with maybe just consumer lending specifically, and potentially any way or roles that AI will play in the category.
1: Consumer lending is really, really hard. I often parallel it to, it's like fire. You're drawn to it. It's great returns. Return on equity, 30 40%. The traditional banks make huge amounts of money out of consumer lending. You're drawn to it because it's warm, because it gives you light. You want to sit around it. But if you take your eye off it just for a second, Alexa, it burns your house down because you build a portfolio that will be a hanging liability for years to come if you make the wrong credit decision. It's marked by meticulous, incredibly careful, incredibly disciplined testing, followed by opportunity that emerges that you then jump into. So it's slow, 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 quick, slow, slow, slow. And that pattern capability, that rhythm is not easy for a traditional hierarchical organization uh, to be able to embrace. But it, again, was a hallmark of the entrepreneurial uh, culture that was quintessentially Capital One. Predictions? Look, i just come back from Nigeria, where I was last week. And what I saw was so fascinating. Fascinating. It's almost like it, Mexico and Brazil from five years hence. The whole country is credit starved. If you want to get a a smartphone, you have to save up. If you want to buy a car, you go and live with your mum and dad for two years to get enough money to go and buy a car for cash. There's no credit in the system. What will happen is new data sets will start to emerge. Capital will start to come into the marketplace. There's an overhanging issue of the FX volatility with the Naira. But you've got such, such energy in a 220 million population country and no access to credit. And the banks have never given access to consumers. So we'll see new data sets emerge, we'll people see it start testing their way in, people start to build credit card portfolios and lending portfolios, and we'll see that become a multiplier effect throughout the economy. We see in the US where half of the US population, people with a FICO score under 650, really can't get a credit card from a mainstream bank. The standard rhetoric that we hear in Washington, and I live in Alexandria, just close to Washington, so I talk to these people quite a lot, is that the banks in rural America are supporting our communities, small businesses and consumers. They're actually not. They're certainly not providing unsecured credit to the large, digitally native gig economy middle class because they either have poor credit or no credit, particularly the immigrant population. The irony is that there are great returns and great social multiplier effects from into, into that population, but the banks don't know how to do it, which means that it's going to be the fintechs that will do that. Now, the fintechs have some massive advantages, user experience, analytical dexterity, product market fit focus, alacrity in terms of uh, how quickly they get things done. But the banks have a massive advantage, and that, uh, that is that they have deposit funding, low cost, durable deposit funding, which is the Achilles heel of consumer lending. So what do I predict? I predict we're going to see fintechs doing this well, some of them getting to escape velocity going public, many of them starting to amalgamate now because there are many, many neobanks in the US and in the UK that are subscale who will now start to come together and look to IPO over the next two to three years. But in the end, the banks have an amazing advantage and the fintechs will have to take on the regulatory scrutiny and burden in order to get access to deposit funding. It's sine qua non.
0: Nigel, do you have any predictions when you think about some of the really maybe where I'm going to call it true innovation. Is there anything that's been catching your eye lately?
1: Well, I didn't answer your question on AI. So I'm a huge believer that AI is going to fundamentally drive uh, productivity gains, which is largely going to be undermining the need for uh, human beings in call centers uh, and providing manual processes. And two, something that Capital One dreamed of, uh, I think Rich Fairbank may have even coined the phrase, mass customization, one-on-one marketing. But at some point, the cost of tailoring uh, exceeded the benefit of the uh, response lift you would get from the tailoring. So we could never get down to that level of atomic segmentation. In a chat GPT world, you can. So we're going to see better productivity and we're going to see improved performance. But the advantage is largely going to be to the incumbents, the incumbents, two sets of incumbents, ones that have data, largely the banks. Uh, They may not be able to use it terribly well, but they've got access to it. If you democratize access to the tools, which will rapidly occur, uh, then you can turn the tools loose on the data sets. And then two, the people who are the, have very deep data science capability, the big tech, who will be able to champion the different tools. They're the people who I think are going to win. And so it's very difficult to invest in AI. I don't see AI and its families really driving too much on the credit innovation side, largely because all the companies that we've invested in, we must have, I don't know, 15 or 20 that are in and around consumer lending around the planet. They're all using AI, and I have been using it for five, 10 years. Everybody's using it. It's just a more advanced statistical tool. And in a sense, it's not a, a step function, certainly in my view. What what do we love these days? Oh, look, I'm really passionate about geographic expansion, particularly from what we've seen in Latin America, Brazil, and Mexico in particular, and how that will play out across Africa and India. Um, you know, I think that in so many ways, Bank was capital two, and it was lovely to be part of that journey. And then I think in India, we can see capital threes emerging. We have one card and Jupiter. Both have a fighting chance of building something of massive scale, leveraging off the same kinds of uh, Maslowian tool sets that um, Capital One developed. So that's exciting. I think um, uh, we're very interested in trade finance and how uh, people are moving money and goods across border and how when you digitalize the logistics process, which is often clunky and paper based, not only does efficiency Improve, not an effectiveness get better. But there's these wonderful windows of embedded finance where you can offer insurance and payments and lending. So I, I really, uh, somebody coined the phrase, it may have been, it may have been Matt Harris, uh, my good friend from Bain. Um, where he said, look, in the end, everything is fintech. And I really believe there's a lot of power in that thought. So much over the next 10 years, Alexa, is going to get digitalized. And people much cleverer than me are going to take these processes and digitalize them, turn them into apps, make them available, transparency. And then from that, there'll be these windows to be able to offer financial service products, where I believe the moat is very, very extensive with the proprietary data sets. And returns can be much more stable, ironically, than the core business that you just digitalized. So we see so many companies that start with solving a real customer's problem. Now, Quinto Andar is a good example, I think, in Brazil, solving the issue of uh, how to rent an apartment in Brazil. The opportunity in the long run might be in the financial service products. So I I couldn't be more excited about about that space. That is very entertaining.
0: If there's one category in the future of FinTech that you're less excited about, that you actually think the market's moving away from? Is there one?
1: One thing about our industry, Alexa, is it's very, it's very mercurial and it's often fashion-based. And what we've had in these last three years is a two kind of major forces of vicissitudes, violent vicissitudes. On the one hand, coming out of COVID, we thought we were going to, into recession. It didn't happen. Massive government stimuli across the board, shift to digital from analog across so many B2C uh, businesses, FOMO. And uh, hedge funds and PE entering the market, bidding up the valuations dramatically. Due diligence collapsed. Uh, founders thinking that they were they had a billion dollar company when it was only worth really a hundred million. QEDs of this world just be you know dizzy with the pace of. Uh, what was happening. And then just as quickly as everything went up, Putin invades, supply chain disruption, inflation scare, rates go up 500 basis points in 19 months, and valuations collapse. I mean, that volatility has just been unparalleled. But while that was going on, we saw this ascension of uh, crypto as being uh, existentially Uh, Something that could massively disrupt our industry hasn't happened. And there's some evidence that it may well not happen, that some of these things take time. So I'm a a Luddite Uh, when it comes to uh, crypto. I'm saying, show me what problem this solves. Don't tell me about how great the tools are, how great the technology is. Who's going to really benefit from this?
0: And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. As you look in the rearview mirror, I always like to ask, was there something in your childhood that you attribute to having an outsized impact to your ability to take on this role of being comfortable with risk?
1: I grew up in a, a sort of business impoverished environment. There was very few books in the house. My dad was a career soldier. My mom was a, a foreign speaking, Welsh speaking, lovely lady. I didn't grow up with any entrepreneurial background whatsoever. I didn't know any entrepreneurs. People often say, you know, oh gosh, you know, uh, I was the first person to go to college for my generation. I didn't know anybody that had ever gone to college. I didn't know what it was. I've sort of stumbled into one good situation from the next. I'm incredibly blessed. What I have inside me, and and it's almost like a demon sometimes, I have this insatiable curiosity an infective passion to figure out how things work. I'm intensely loyal Merci. And I intensely care about the people with me. I'm so blessed that I have my partner, Frank Rotman, who we have worked together for 30. He told me that we've been together for 30 years, like a a generation working together with Capital One and now uh, QED and Bill Salufo and Mike Packer and just so many super people at QED and to be surrounded by people that you trust and care about deeply, doing really the best work you can do and working with entrepreneurs who are half your age and twice as smart, literally, and to be part of that and just, I feel like I'm a vampire empire sometimes, uh, Alexa, of other people's energy. I couldn't wish to do anything different or better. But no, I don't believe people can strategic plan their career. And I really don't like people who say, I'm going to go into an Ivy school, and then I'm going to do two years at Goldman, then I'm going to go to Stanford, and then I'm going to, I'm just like, just do what you love to do and do it really brilliantly. Well, look, I may have been really lucky that I didn't have parents and an extended family telling me that that's the route I should go down because it was complete tabula rasa. So I could, you know, I was making it up as I went along. And I've had so many great people over my career uh, that have played mentor roles to me. I've benefited amazingly from that. And to to the extent that I can now, having had the experience I've had, be that mentor to others is just a a wonderful gift.
0: Is there a certain trait that in the rearview mirror, you you want to other people who aspire to have such tremendous success that you think is a really critical one for people in business to have?
1: Restlessness. i am never, the people said this to me, I'm, I'm never happy I have never believed that I've solved the problem. And I believe that if you have solved the problem, QED, <laughs> then by the time you've solved it, your answer is obsolete. So I think there's a restlessness that says there's, got, there's a better way. There's got to be a, there's more data. Where does the theory break down as you extend it into different places, geographically, uh, vertically, stage, whatever? I think that's, that's critical. Being really authentic is important. There's a lot of pretenders in this world and a lot of really clever pretenders as the years have gone by, I don't want to be around them so much. I want people that are true to themselves and with all their foibles, uh, have some consciousness of it. Uh, Tenacity. We've invested in 200 companies. We've made 29 unicorns over now, 15, 16 years, and have been doing fintech before it was a thing. But two or three of them hit their numbers that they projected when they came in and pitched. The statistical odds of this company delivering these hockey stick numbers is tiny. When I look to young entrepreneurs, I look for people who can dust themselves off when it doesn't work and have a plan B. People who think linearly, I think, have a greater chance of failing. You want people to think in decision trees who start with a theory of the case and how they're going to solve a real pitch point problem, friction, disaster in somebody's life, uh, and then uh, are looking to test their way to uh, get the market fit. And then, really crucially, they have the sense sense of sensitivity and the awareness to realize that scaling a company is really hard. And there are so many things that can go wrong and will go wrong. So I'm listening when we're having these conversations. I'm listening for people that are listening. If you think you know how to do it, and you can do it yourself. Go take money from somewhere else. Because I'm what I want QED to do, and, and the marvelous team that we've built. I want them to bend the arc of probability of you being successful throughout the life of your company. And the, I've seen I, I've seen so many mistakes made. I've made so many mistakes. And if I can point out what that monster is around the corner that you don't even know exists before you see it, uh, you can be forewarned. It's forearmed, and you can navigate it.
0: You're looking for nonlinear thinkers. You said you like people who think in decision tree. I always say I'm looking for creative strategic thinkers. Can we unpack that for a second? What does that mean to you?
1: Most entrepreneurs, nearly all of them, the day when you meet them is the biggest company they've ever run. So they are making it up as they go along, too. And they have to put on this patina of actually knowing what they're talking about in order they believe, in order to get access to capital. So they pretend that they know what's going to happen. Of course, they don't. And that's part of the journey. Uh, Venture capital is about extracting as much uh, signal as you can out of very, very little data, almost like squeezing it from stone. So I'm looking for people that can think in if-then statements, think in terms of hypotheses, have a plan plan B and C and D, and can articulate that back to what you said, the sort of orthogonal problem-solving skills. People who think meticulously and detailed in terms of project management skills are are very relevant at stage B, C, and D, but are not relevant at C and A. So you want that breakout orthogonal passion thinking that you call that sort of creative uh, strategic thinking. The other thing I would add is I'm looking for somebody who's got a sensitivity around culture who knows what it is who has a sense of it. The time to to work on a culture is when you're starting, not when you're at the C stage. So the time to focus on uh, mental health in the workplace, on gender and ethnic diversity is when you start. And it's good business to do it. It's not just something that you're supposed to do. That's something I often preach. The other thing is I'm looking for often dyadic relationships in the team. I really want to have somebody who's deeply technical, who can turn the idea into action and do it, ship code fast and accurately and drive product market fit. And then I want a visionary. I want somebody who's got the passion and energy. And I learned over the years, uh, Alexa, people don't follow... You because you're smart. I mean, if you really don't have anything to say, it's hard, but they follow you because they want to believe in something bigger than themselves. And you've got to be able to infect people with a passion and an energy and a belief. People who want to change the world in some palpable, meaningful way, who want to write their legacy. I'm looking for people who can get people to join at less money and more hours from other places, have people want to join them on the journey.
0: Nigel, my last question before we move to the quickfire round is, is there something that you hold as sacred?
1: It's the Hippocratic Oath. I think that fintech and the behavioral economics, deep data knowledge, and test and learn can uncover pockets where you can take advantage of people. Uh, you can leverage that. Lending is a perfect example. Nearly everybody that you lend money to believes they're going to pay you back. The payday lending built a whole odious franchise based on that. I believe fintech can be a force for massive social good. It's a massive multiplier effect. It levels the playing field, empowers consumers, empowers consumers and small businesses. Credit Karma is a perfect example. It democratized access to Experian data. Your data is in those bureaus, and you did not have access to it in any way that you could digest. If you ever look at a credit bureau, I've looked at my own. I mean, it's, it's, it's gobbledygook. One of the goals I have is that I'd love before my time comes to an end is that I want QED to have touched the lives of a billion people around the globe. So we have Nubank, 80 million, Credit Karma, 120 million. Uh, we have Klarna, 70 million. I can't remember the latest numbers. And then we have ClearScore at 20 million. And we start to add it up. And I think we can get a little over 300 million. So I'm a third of the way to my goal. But it's going to be India and Indonesia and Nigeria and these emerging markets where we're able to put transparent, fair, low friction, brilliant product market fit, galvanizing it, uh, helping people's lives, creating multiplier effect businesses, uh, products into those geographies. And that's what I want to be. I want to be able to say a billion people benefited in some small way from what we did.
0: Okay, Nigel, I'm going to ask you a few quick questions on the first thing that comes to your mind. What is a book? of any kind that's had an impact on your life that you would pay it forward to others?
1: A woman called Margaret Wheatley, and it was called Leadership, the New Science. She said, look, you know, Henry Ford and hierarchical organization structure, militaristic structures work where businesses are very predictable. But if you go to an Einsteinian world of non-linearity, you need a different organizational structure and hierarchical structures break down. So I really think the future of organization is in the Einsteinian world and it it requires a different type of mindset and a different type of approach than the old sort of uh, Henry Ford or militaristic hierarchy.
0: Is there an interview question that you like to ask people because it gives you a sense of something deeper? Why
1: do you do this? Why do you put your body through this? And I think there's something deep in the psychology of entrepreneurship, that people seek that unstructured environment, seek that open field running, are willing to bet on their own curiosity and native capability. And I want to know what drives them. Why? I want to do it because I want to make lots of money. That's a fair reason. I don't think it's particularly compelling. I still think here at my ripe old age I'm still trying to prove something and I think that most of our entrepreneurs who will who have the tenacity to get through the ups and downs are trying to prove something deep in themselves. You know most of the people who are giving money to entrepreneurs didn't build things and didn't get them to scale and don't have the you know the scars on their back that I have and by being able to relate to that I think that they can, uh, one, appreciate a mentoring relationship, which I I find incredibly valuable, but also they can open up on that.
0: Nigel, last two questions. If you have to think about one quote or a mantra or something that keeps even you going during the hard moments, what is it?
1: Uh, Truth will out. In the end, if you have a great business and you're solving a real customer's problem and you've got great unit economics and you're a, a, a competent management team, you can get through anything. It's never as bad as it looks at the worst of times, and it's never as good as it looks at the best of times. Don't react to the data that you saw at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Sleep on it and see how it looks at 9 o'clock in the morning. Just, you know, your goal is to dampen the vicissitudes, the beta, and take a half step back and put things into perspective. Have somebody alongside you that complements you and makes you better. Somebody that you trust and care for deeply. Those those relationships are really really special, and f- seek them out uh, and rely upon them.
0: What is the biggest pinch me moment?
1: We had five companies go public in 2021: uh, New Bank, Remitly. Sofi I think that may have been 2020 uh, Avid Exchange Flywire I think the pinch me moment is watching the CEO stand up there ring the bell uh, going public and seeing the enthusiasm and energy of the team that he or she had built and just say and saying to myself you know what I was a, a small part of that and look what can be created look at the multiplier effects if you can get a combination of advice and capital uh, and earnestness Uh, and hard work, tenacity. And you can enter the equation uh, with those things.
0: Nigel, this has been such an incredible pleasure. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. And I wish I met you back in 2007 when I was founding LearnVest. Everybody out there, if you want to check out QED, head to qedinvestors.com. If you haven't already checked out Capital One, please do. You can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Vantoval. Nigel, we're rooting for you. Sincerely, thank you so much. Uh,
1: You're the best. Thanks so much.